Let's turn in the word of God, the gospel according to Luke. And we turn today to Luke chapter 2, reading from the first verse. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word, concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told." It's the season of the year, of course, where there is tremendous focus on the birth of the baby Jesus. Many who would think nothing of these things for the rest of the year will, at least perhaps for a brief time, uh, give some thought to the reason for uh, all that takes place at this time of year. Of course, the birth of Christ, we know, uh, very often is sentimentalized, uh, romanticized. You think of the representations uh, on uh, the Christmas cards uh, in Christian art, and that's not a criticism of any cards that we may have received, but it is romanticized, isn't it? It's all clean uh, and hygienic. It's a stable, and yet you think uh, it's got to be the most hygienic uh, stable there ever was on the face uh, of the earth. Uh, And the scene, in many ways, is viewed through rose-tinted spectacles. Uh, And a scene free of pain, of dirt, of 
hardship of all the things that really were there when the Lord Jesus Christ was born into the world. It's very far from the portrayals uh, in art. It's sanitized. Uh, It's prettified in ways that don't really reflect what the Lord Jesus Christ encountered in coming into uh, this world. And the reality was very different. Here is the baby uh, being born to a relatively poor mother. They were not the bottom of society, but they were fairly low down the social order. When they're offering a sacrifice uh, in the temple later on, it's a sacrifice of the two doves for the poorer people. So those are his economic uh, circumstances. Uh, and it's in a stable early Christian tradition was the stable, in fact, was a cave. Uh, they were among the animals, uh, and uh, there was little hygiene of any kind for a birth. Uh, and it was a time, of course, when pain relief was minimal, if there was any of it at all. Uh, and it was particularly in the context of that day, an extremely uh, dangerous event. Uh, The losses of mothers and babies uh, at birth in the ancient world was phenomenal. And families expected uh, to lose a number of children. Uh, And even, of course, into relatively recent times, childbirth uh, was very dangerous. And so here, especially in that environment... Uh, and it was an event that few noticed, very obscure, and yet we know that this uh, was one of the most important events in human history. Very few other events compare with it, and they're all events that involve the Lord Jesus Christ. This is world-shattering in its significance. And so we come Uh, today to the opening part of Luke chapter 2. We're looking at the portion we read, uh, verses 1 to 20, the Saviour born. The Saviour born. And several important things that we see in this passage. In one sense, of course, this is very familiar. Uh, It is well-trodden ground. And perhaps the temptation is in coming to a passage like this to think, I know what I know it inside out. There's nothing new here. And then, in effect, really to tune out. But we're never to tune out from the Word of God. The Word always speaks to the heart of God's people. And who knows what the Lord may have for you from this passage today. Often people uh, say after a sermon, I never saw that there before. Now, a preacher's first thought is, well, I hope it really is there if they never saw it before. But the truth is that often, of course, there's something that touches a particular need or something in your circumstances in a passage today that you didn't particularly need in all the previous times that you looked at it. And that might be the reason you never saw that there before. Always was there, but today is God's day to apply that particular point to your situation, to your life. So we are always to come, even to the most familiar passages in God's Word, ready to hear what the Lord would say. The Savior born. And the first thing that stands out 
in the record here in Luke is the Lord's providence. The Lord's providence. Because everything in these events depends on the providence of a sovereign God. That is true, of course, of everything that happens in God's creation. But here, particularly, the providence of a sovereign God stands out. Notice the historical information at the beginning of the chapter. A mention of Caesar Augustus issuing a decree. A census of the Roman world takes place when Quirinius is governor in Syria. Very specific, isn't it? Uh, And Luke, of course, is a a fine historian. Uh, And it's good to remember that. Uh, Secular sources don't mention this particular census uh, in the governorship of Quirinius. Uh, And so there are those, of course, who say, ah, Luke got it wrong. There you are, you can't trust the gospel. We always knew that. But the fact is, when Luke's writings can be checked alongside other historical sources. Luke is shown constantly to be a very careful and very accurate historian. Where he can be checked, he is right. Things like the titles of different governors and details that it would be easy to miss. You know the way often, for example, American and other writers referring to the royal family or to British nobility often get the details wrong. They just don't understand it. Luke doesn't do that. He's always right where he can be checked. And so we can have confidence where he can't be checked. He's trustworthy, historically accurate, very careful, excellent historian. And so this is set in a very precise historical Location, time and place. And Luke is telling us about a God who acts in history to fulfill his plans. That's why history matters so much to Christians. Talking to one uh, unconverted man the other day, and we're talking about the Bible. And his comment, there's a lot of it as history. And the answer to that is yes, exactly. A lot of it is history because History matters to the Christian faith in a way it doesn't to other religions. If we have an accurate history, if these events didn't happen, there is no Christianity, there's nothing that will go on without the Christ who's described here. History matters. This is a God who acts in history. And you see it very clearly at the opening of this chapter. Because this is the Lord who overrules the actions of the emperor of the most powerful empire of the day, Caesar Augustus. And it's God who overrules so that he decrees this census at a particular time that involves these people. And the goal of God's overruling of the emperor of Rome is that Joseph went up to Bethlehem, the town of David. One little tiny corner of the empire, a carpenter and his wife go up to a little town. We talk about the city of David, but it was a small town in our terms. Not much more than a village. 
And Almighty God, the Sovereign, overrules events and the decisions of the Roman Emperor so that this takes place exactly when he wants it to happen. Joseph goes up to the town of David because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And that's important. It's important because it emphasizes that Jesus was from the line of David. And so the prophecies of Second Samuel 7, for example, are fulfilled, made centuries earlier, almost a couple of millennia earlier. And now here in Bethlehem, God makes sure that those prophecies are fulfilled. And the decisions of Augustus are overruled by God so that everything is according to his plan. It's not Augustus's plan, it's the plan of God. God is able to do everything that's needed to bring about the fulfillment of what he had promised so long ago. And you see his providence also in relation to this family. Joseph and Mary, the baby to be born, very humble, in world terms insignificant. Joseph, Mary, expecting the child, verses 4 and 5. For the incarnation of the Son of God, we might have thought, well, it'll be a noble family when the, the wise men come. Of course, they go straight to the palace, to Herod. Where else would you expect to find a baby of such importance? And yet that's not the case. God has chosen the birth of the Messiah, an obscure couple. He brings them to a little town in the back of beyond, as far as the empire is concerned. Very humble circumstances. No comforts, no wealth, no grandeur whatsoever. And it is the amazing work of the Lord. That is how God works. This is the birth of one who, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, and verse 9, though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor. And everything in this scene underlines that. The Son of God becomes poor. And the circumstances of his birth emphasize that. This is a, a God who in his providence reverses human expectations in order to fulfill his plan doesn't matter what human beings would think God would do. This is what God has done. The Lord's providence overruling even the decisions of the Roman emperor to fulfill his plan and his promises. The Lord's providence. Secondly, the angel's message. The angel's message, the announcement of the Messiah's birth is given, verse 9, by an angel of the Lord, probably Gabriel. And it's to shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Now we'll think a bit more about them in a moment. But it's an astounding message. Perhaps we're so familiar with it, it really doesn't strike us in the way that it ought to. Good news of great joy. And it has worldwide significance. 
Uh, It is not just for these shepherds. That will be for all the people. This is of huge significance. We might say nothing greater has been announced before in human history. Worldwide significance, the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. The purpose of God isn't to be narrowly limited to ethnic Israel. This is for Gentiles as well, Gentiles like us. This is for all the people. This truly has world significance and it will echo down through history. And at the center of the angel's message, of course, is the Messiah, the one that the Jews had looked for for centuries, for hundreds, for thousands of years. And now Messiah has come. And he's described in the most exalted terms. This is a baby, remember, in a stable, in a little town. And look how he is described. A saviour. He is Christ the Lord. And that expression, that description of Jesus is full of profound theology. On the face of it, they seem to be simple words. They're, to Christians, they're familiar words, but don't miss the depths in that description. Well, a saviour. Who is the saviour? Interesting. Augustus, in political terms, portrayed himself in that language that he was the saviour. No, he's not. This is the saviour. This is the real saviour. And as Jews, of course, the shepherds knew, saviour is God. God is the one who saves. God is the one who has saved his people down through the centuries. Not a political salvation here, which, of course, many Jews wanted. They wanted Augustus's Romans pushed into the Mediterranean and out of their country. But that's not why Messiah has come. Matthew 1.21 You'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that's the heart of the matter. It is spiritual salvation from sin. A saviour. He is Christ. Of course, that's the, the Greek version of Messiah. Anointed one. And who was anointed In biblical culture, well, prophets, priests, kings, they were anointed in the Old Testament. And now here is the anointed one, Messiah, Christ, and his work will be the work of a prophet and the work of a priest and the work of a king. In the Old Testament, those were all separate. But in Messiah, all three come together. All of these are needed for him to do the work the Father has given him. He is the last, final, great prophet. He'll be the priest who offers himself as a sacrifice. He will be the king, king of kings, lord of lords. He is the Christ, the Messiah. Christ the Lord. 
And that word is full of Old Testament significance. The word used of God, the word used to translate the Old Testament covenant name that was was too sacred for the Jews to pronounce, he's the Lord. And that tells us that in the Messiah, God himself has come. This is God who is present in that baby in the manger. And as God, he has given the highest possible honor. The very titles tell us that. The Savior Christ the Lord. God has come. He is to be praised and glorified in the response of the angels is the only possible, the only appropriate response. A great company of the heavenly host and they're praising God. Glory to God in the highest. And of course that is the proper response to the birth of the Messiah. Not a sentimental cooing over the baby in the manger. But praising God for the wonderful thing that he has done. For the giving of a Savior, Christ the Lord. Glory is due to God. This is God's great work of salvation that will culminate on the cross of Calvary. And all the glory belongs to him. Mary, Joseph, really fade into the background. And the focus is on Christ and on the God who has sent him and provided him. Heavenly hosts. The word for an army. And here is an army that is proclaiming peace. Not many armies do that. They may enforce peace but they don't come announcing good news of peace. But here is an army that does. On earth, peace. And to whom is that peace promised? It's to men on whom God's favor rests. And that takes us to the heart of the gospel of grace. Because salvation is by grace by the favor of God to undeserving sinners like us. People who deserve judgment receive favor and grace from the hand of God, grace that flows to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is eternal redeeming love. Love that flows to us through Christ in a salvation That's by grace from start to finish. The Lord's providence. The angel's message. Thirdly, the shepherd's praise. The shepherd's praise. The angels have been praising God. And now we turn to think about the shepherds. And again, of course, we're so used to the sanitized tidy, attractive-looking shepherds and their, their clean garments and the portrayals in Christian art. But again, God's reversing human expectations when he chooses 
shepherds to be the first to hear of the Messiah's birth. These are not neat, tidy, clean, respectable people. These shepherds keeping watch over their flocks were men who were ritually unclean. These were men who generally had a bad reputation for dishonesty. These were the sort of men you might expect today to come and offer to tarmac your drive. They had a bad reputation. They were men who would not be trusted by respectable society. That was shepherds. And these were the first people to hear this good news. And God is a God who chooses outcasts, those often on the fringes of society, to hear this good news. The word doesn't go, first of all, to the religious authorities. They wouldn't want to hear it. Or to the nobility or to Herod. He wouldn't want to hear it. But here are men at the bottom of society, you know, say, whose hearts have been prepared by God to hear this good news. News of a Messiah. Uh, as we're told in Luke 5.32, from the Messiah's own lips, who has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here are sinners, and men who would know they're sinners, and they're called to repentance in the light of the coming of the Messiah. The righteous, the self-righteous, the Pharisees and others will close their hearts to the Messiah. But it's tax collectors, it's prostitutes, it's shepherds whose hearts the Lord will open to the Messiah. Uh, these men symbolize the kind of ministry that the Messiah will undertake. It will not, by and large, be moving among the respectable and the religious and the good living. They're the ones who put him on a cross. But those who know they're sinners and who by God's grace have a sense of spiritual need who will embrace the Messiah. They're keeping watch over their flocks in Bethlehem. And it's certainly possible, we can't prove it, but it's certainly possible that these flocks were the flocks from which the sacrificial lambs were taken for the temple in Jerusalem. The geography of Bethlehem certainly would suggest that could be the case. They were watching over the lambs for sacrifice. How significant if that was the case. A reminder of the cost of forgiveness, of salvation to men like this, to sinners like us. It would need the death of a sacrifice. And indeed, that baby in the manger would be the sacrifice and would be the means of salvation of these shepherds, of the Magi, indeed of Mary and Joseph themselves, and of those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the cost of the salvation that Messiah is bringing. And in their response, there is an urgency, isn't there? Let's go, verse 15. They can't sit out in the fields. 
They'll maybe get some of the young fellows perhaps to, to keep an eye on the sheep while they go into Bethlehem to see what the angels have spoken about. The result of seeing and hearing, when they go and they see for themselves, verse 17, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. The duty and the privilege of witness. This isn't something they can keep to themselves. People are amazed when they hear the message of the shepherds, their, their testimony, really, to what God is doing in that stable in Bethlehem. We're told the shepherds, verse 20, returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. And those are the appropriate responses to these great events. Praising God. Telling others about them. This is a day of good news. And they can't keep it to themselves. And Christians are those who should be praising God for what he has done. We can be wrapped up in the season. Maybe less this year because of the restrictions. There's all the busyness and the material side of it, and some of that is good and proper. But we can so readily lose sight of the fact that these are events that should stir our hearts to praise. If they don't, there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong if we can think of what God has done in Christ, and we don't praise him. And our hearts aren't lifted up. And we want people to know about this Savior. That's the response of a child of God to the birth of Messiah. Here are the greatest events in history. Here are the events that lead to your salvation if you're a Christian. And what greater cause could you have for praising God than that? And don't you long for others who don't know Christ, to come to know him and to share in that praise and rejoicing. The Lord's providence, the angel's message, the shepherd's praise, and finally the mother's thoughts. The mother's thoughts could easily Skip over the end of the passage, verse 19, and, and miss it. To not give it the attention it should have. These are events of world significance. We've already said that. Bishop J.C. Ryle, when he's writing uh, on Luke, says, quote, The spiritual darkness which had covered the earth for 4,000 years was about to be rolled away. The darkness is passing away. The light has come. And so it's not surprising when we read Mary's response in verse 19. She treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. I've already seen with regard to the birth of John the Baptist, the local people pondered these things. They knew something big was happening. Far more the case now for Mary with the birth 
of the promised baby. Pondering. And she would have time to ponder, to think of these things. She finally got the baby to sleep. And if she could stay awake herself, her mind was bound to be going around on these things. And Mary is a woman of profound faith. We saw that when we looked at her song back in chapter 1. Profound faith. And she has an understanding of the significance of the work that her son is going to do. But there's a lot still to learn. Mary's sitting in the stable. It's not as if she's read the four Gospels and Paul's letters and the whole of the New Testament and has all the theology off in her head. She has a lot to learn. And there will be misunderstandings and mistakes as she relates to her son, especially once his public ministry begins. The rest of the family doesn't believe in him. There's a lot to learn. No doubt as she's pondering these things and turning them over, remembering what the shepherds said about the angel's message, all of that, no doubt the Holy Spirit is teaching her and leading her into a fuller and a fuller understanding of what this baby will be and will do. And Luke probably talked to Mary as he was writing the gospel. There's a point in Paul's career, you remember, he was in prison in Caesarea, waiting to be sent to Rome, and Luke was there. One of those passages where Luke and Acts writes about, we did this or this or this. And can we imagine Luke, the historian, didn't travel and meet Mary and talk to her, interview her, Perhaps talked to others, Peter, who stayed on in Jerusalem, and others interviewed them. God has sourced material for the gospel. Imagine Luke perhaps listening to Mary firsthand, telling him what she'd thought and what she'd done, how her understanding of Jesus grew and developed, so that Luke could record it in his gospel. And it must have been a tremendous comfort. To Mary, these difficult and dangerous circumstances. Eventually, she'll be a, a refugee with Joseph in Egypt for a time because of the threat from Herod. There are hard times ahead. A comfort to her to, to grasp how God is working through her to do something glorious, something amazing, to provide salvation for her. Remember, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. And for every believer, she's much to ponder, much to treasure in her heart, and she does. She's a believing woman. She's a saved sinner. And we need to make sure we're like her. We're saved sinners, trusting in this Messiah that we don't get lost in all the peripherals and the sanitized, romanticized picture of the birth of Messiah. That we see it for what it is. It's the birth of the Savior we need. The one who's able to save to the uttermost all who come 
through him, to make sure we're able to praise this God of grace and salvation and mercy. May that be our hope at this season of the year and every season. And we give all the glory, all the praise to our great God.